Hey there, I'm so pumped to tell you about an amazing new community I've launched called Grief to Growth Circle Community. It's a space for people who are grieving to come together to support each other and for people who want to know who we are, why we're here, where we're going to have those conversations, all the things we talk about on the podcast. So I invite you to join me at grieftogrowth.com slash community to become part of this compassionate crew. The best part is 100% free. And you have access to me in addition to everybody else in the community. In fact, the podcast will be there so you can talk about the things we talk about in the podcast right there in the community. There's also some premium content if you want to go deeper in the work I'm doing, but mostly it's about building relationships and community and about sharing resources and supporting each other. So come on over and check it out. It's grieftogrowth.com slash community. I'll see you inside. Hi there. Welcome to Grief to Growth Podcast. Your host is Brian Smith, spiritual seeker, best-selling author, grief survivor, and life coach. Brian believes that the worst tragedies of life provide the greatest opportunity for growth. Brian says he was planted, not buried, and he is here to help you grow where you've been planted by the difficulties in life. In each episode, Brian and his guests will share what has helped them to survive and thrive. It is his sincere hope this episode helps you today. Hi, everybody. This is Brian Smith back with another episode of Grief to Growth. And I've got with me today, I'm really excited to talk to him. It's uh, Raymond O'Brien. And Raymond has a fascinating story. This is going to sound unbelievable, but he died 10 times in one night. He said multiple uh, NDEs. He's had a couple or several, I guess, spiritually transformative experiences. Uh, Raymond is in the UK. He is the UK's first NDE trauma therapist. Um, Raymond is... um, helping to bridge the care, the care gap, I guess, with, with prof- medical professionals and people who have had NDEs. And we're going to talk about, uh, a lot of people that listen to my podcast are familiar with the NDE and some of the students said, oh, it'd be great to have an NDE, but it's not all sunshine and roses. We're going to talk about the difficulties of coming back from the NDE and the work that Raymond is doing. Raymond has been a speaker with the IANS conference. That's I-A-N-D-S for those of you who are not familiar with it. And IANS is the International Association for Near-Death Studies. So with that, I want to welcome to my show, Raymond O'Brien. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for asking me. Hello, everyone out there. Thank you for joining us. Raymond, um, I was, we were connected by a mutual friend, Lilia, who works with IANS quite a bit. And she shared with me your story. And it just sounds you know, amazing, not only the experience you've had, but what you've done you know, since coming back, the things you're trying to do to help other people that have had the near-death experience. So... To start off, tell me about this this night you had where you, you had several deaths and had a couple apparently near-death experiences. Uh, yes. Um, I, think, I think it's important to just give you a very brief background to, to my family. Sure. Uh, I, I come from a family of seers. My, uh, my granny was a seer. We, we see illnesses on people and so forth. Uh, and, uh, and I've been running from that, from the work that I knew that I had to do. Hmm. Uh, I became a heavy drinker, uh, tried to drown out the thoughts, the voice with a capital V. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, it wasn't working. I was working in London. Uh, this was probably about a year before I had the experience. And uh, thought I decided I'd go see my mother. I sat at the kitchen table with her. And um, she pointed her finger at me and said, you have to change because something's going to happen to you. Hmm. Uh, I, I remember joking with us. So Mom would laugh you pretty bad because you know I've, I've been up to a few things. She said it will be. And I left it at that, wow. and um, I was working, working on a Wednesday, working at a guy's house who was a, a keep fit guy, and we were exchanging exercises, chest exercises, and so forth. And uh, so I, I got home Wednesday, started to do some exercises. Thursday. I woke up with chest pain, went to work, and uh, did a day's work, came home. The voice inside my head told me that I was going to die. And, uh, as soon as I got in, I rang my mother, explained to her that uh, I've, I've just been told, Mom, that I'm going to die. She said, who told you? I said, the voice. Mm-hmm. She didn't say nothing after that, Brian. The conversation came to an end, which was unusual for my mother. So this was, this was now on a, on a Thursday. I had a wonderful cat uh, called Mr. Mr. B. I'd saved his life probably about 
three years beforehand. He was attacked by a dog, and I beat the dog off. And I remember pointing at him and said, you owe me one, Mr. B. Yeah. And uh, so the weekend came, Brian, and it was Sunday night. And I remember got up to bed, lay in bed, had the most incredible chest pain. It was unbelievable. I assumed it was down to the exercises. Mm. Got out of bed, did some press-ups, chest pain went away, popped back into bed, still bad, got back out of bed again, pulled another 10, 15, 20 press-ups. It must have opened up the major artery, and I felt great. Mm. But back into bed, lay on my right-hand side, and uh, my soul instantly told me, you're in trouble, Raymond, you're in trouble. I flicked my legs out from the side of the bed, um, was in a, a real state of panic, came downstairs, turned my uh, front room light on, and there was Bill curled up on the sofa. And he looked at me, Brian, and he had this look on his face, and I remember distinctly saying to him, I know, B, I, I feel really bad. And I went to reach for the, for the phone, cordless phone, here in the UK, instead of uh, 911, we hit triple nine. Mm -hmm. I'd hit two nines. And the next thing I remember, I woke up on the floor. And, uh, and it was my cat. He licked, licked my nose. And, and the most, was, his breath was like smelling salts. Mm. So I hit the last nine, got through to paramedics, uh, talking to the paramedics. Uh, they said, just sit down. We'll send the ambulance for you. So I, I live in a quiet town, so anything like a like an ambulance siren, you can hear for a, an awful long distance. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there. It's now about quarter to twelve at night, and I can hear the ambulance coming for me. My cat is sitting next to me. I'm having real trouble breathing. Um, and the paramedics walked in. I was because I was told to leave the door open. They came in. They looked at me took me out to the back of the ambulance, which was parked right outside my house, got onto the gurney, and um, started to be sick. Mm. And the paramedic said to me, her name was Rebecca. She, she looked at the contents of the bowl, and she went, I can see why you've been sick. And I thought, no, no, this isn't, this isn't what's, what's made me ill. Yeah. Uh, so I couldn't breathe, Brian. I, I had real trouble breathing. She kept saying to me, breathe, Raymond, breathe. And she turned her back, and I'd lost all hope. I put my chin to the shoulder, and I remember distinctly saying, if ever there's a time to check out, Raymond, it's now. And that's what I did, Brian. The next thing, I was on the other side. Mm. A tiny soul. And I stood there, looked around me. The most, it was the most beautiful place. I know we're short of time, so I won't go into too much detail. No, take your time. Take your time. Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Uh, I stood there. I was aware of, of what happened. and knew I, I had left my body. Hmm. Um, being the sort of person who I am, I decided, well, if I have gone to the other side, I'm going to fill my boots while I'm here. I want to take in as much as I can. Uh, so I stood there, and off in the distance, Brian, was two men, three women hmm. one of the guys was probably about 45 the guy next to him looked like santa claus big white beard white hair all of the people were dressed in white robes hmm. three women had head veils on and they were talking to each other we've got two guys here we've got the three women and you've got raymond here you know, hmm. looking at the whole event the beautiful vivid grass the grass under my feet felt like the softest fur I remember scrunching my toes and, and just thinking, this is amazing. Hmm. So as I stood there, the next thing that came into contact with me was the wind. It just went through me, Brian. And it, it, was, almost, it was almost the guardian of, of, of the other side. Hmm. And I remember standing there thinking, I wonder when I'm going to get my wings. <laughs> And as I'm looking at the two persons and, and, and the three ladies, the first lady has looked. She's turned back and looked at me and she smiled at me. I thought, great. The next lady has tilted forward. She's looked back at me. The third lady has said to the, to the, to the, to the middle-aged guy, Raymond's here. Hmm. I thought, they know who I am. 
I can't ask them for reason, they know who I am. Nothing was said for about 30 seconds and I felt myself float over to the middle-aged man. I'm now at shoulder height to him and the elder guy who called him Santa Claus, he had a tan brown little book and he didn't even look at me. All he said was, he shouldn't be here. Hmm. He did that. Next thing, I'm, I'm awake in the back of the ambulance. Wow. I've looked up at Rebecca, and she's looking down at me. And the first thing I said, Brian, was, I'm really sorry about that, Rebecca. I said, I was on the other side there. She said, mm -hmm. do you go on the other side a lot, Ray? I said, yeah, I do. I, I come from a family of healers, and you know, we, we see things, we do unusual things. And I said, if you park up, I'll make you a cup of tea, and I'll tell you all about it. Um, she went, no, no, Ray. She went, you died. Wow. She said, do you see this clock in the back of the English ambulances? They have a red LED clock. Okay. And she leant over me, and she flicked it. She said, this clock stopped at 12 o'clock when you died. She said, so I'm thinking, I'm looking back at her, I'm thinking, you're wrong. You've made a mistake. It's, it's mm -hmm. all right. I accept it. You've made a mistake. Don't allow me back into the house. She went, we're still outside your house, Raymond. She said, we can't move until we've, we've resuscitated you. Okay. And she said, we're going off now to your local hospital. Off we went. Mm -hmm. Blue lighted me. I remember the ambulance reversing up to the ER room. Doors opened, and it was just like a scene from ER. I could hear the, uh, the medical doctors saying, 47-year-old male, uh, cardiac arrest, um, a few other things they said to me, but now wheeled me out of the back of the ambulance and I could see the fluorescent lights just going by me. I'm thinking, this is just so surreal. But mm -hmm. It all stopped at the moment. Mm -hmm. We got into the research room. And, uh, people started asking me my name, started cutting my clothes off. Um, one of the ladies, one of the, the nurses there said to me, we need your next of kin's telephone number, Raymond. I remember as I lay on the gurney, I looked at her and I, I asked, am I that bad? She said, yeah, you are. Uh, I said, well, look, this is my mother's telephone number. I went, Please only call if I don't make it. Mm. I said, she's, she's old, she's frail, and this would just probably destroy her. I went, okay. So I waited for what they was going to do. And then, to be honest with you, Brian, it wasn't a joy anymore. It turned into something which was a real fight, hmm. uh, probably the, the biggest fight I've ever had in my life. Hmm. Um, I felt the life drain out of me. I knew I was dying. I, I, I knew that. I, I had accepted that. Um, I watched everyone work around me. The next thing I know, I'm on the other side again couple of moments that I don't remember exactly what happened, um, but a guy came to see me, I called him California Dave, he came from California, he had a brain tumour, and he'd heard about me through the Healing Trust. A few years before this, I'd become a registered healer because I, I was a seer, I used to work on animals, okay. horses, cats, and, you know, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and really kind of take the pain away from people, that was the other thing which was quite remarkable about what, what I was able to do. Mm -hmm. and uh, so there I am in the ER room I've dropped back into my body for the second time come round watching everyone do what they have to do next thing I'm gone again um, this is when I met California Dave uh, we, I went to a place called The Grey I don't know if you've heard of it no I haven't a few other people have described it which kind of I heard this from a, a researcher uh, mm -hmm. 20-year researcher who had been looking at near death, and he was, when I explained to him that you know, I'd seen the grey, mm -hmm. I've heard a few others say that, right? So there I am, I'm on the other side, Brian, and there's hundreds of people moving really slowly. Everything is grey, but different tones of grey. Mm -hmm. I found myself at the feet, because my soul is tiny, smaller than, than, than myself. I found myself probably at hand height, Dave had his hands down by his side, so I've looked up at him. And as I've looked up, I've, I've risen just to get to, to eye level. 
and it's, this is when I could see everybody's heads, and it's almost like a football, uh, a football crowd at the end of a match where everybody shuffles out. Mm-hmm. And as I've got to eye level with him, out of the corner of my eye, I've seen the wind, and the wind was nothing like the wind that had met me the first time round. It was a black carbon razor wind that flicked across the heads of everyone, mm-hmm. and everybody had their head down. And as I got to Dave's eyesight, he went, Ray, Dave, what are you doing here? I "I don't know. You're not supposed to be here. Hmm. So as I'm looking at him, I've just kept rising up and I've left that plane. The next thing I know, Brian, is that my nose is now on the ceiling to the ER room. Hmm. I'm falling backwards. And I fell back into my body with a real, almost like a splash, to be quite honest with you. Mm -hmm was aware that the people who were working around me were defibrillating me. Um, the pain of the defibrillator, well, um, cracked my teeth, cracked mm. some of my ribs, um, and then worked on me, worked on me, kept going backwards and forwards as this went on. Sometimes when I'd come back, I remember lying on my back, thought, I'm back, I'm back in my body. But I came up bolt upright and I pointed my finger at everyone. And I remember the ER crew stepped back. They had this look of <gasps> on their face. And I remember pointing to them and I, I, I said I well needed that. And yeah. I crashed back down, gone again. And this carried on for nine times. Wow. Um, in and out, in and out. And I remember looking at the clock. Brian, and I think it all ended at round about quarter past one in uh, the morning. I remember the lovely lady who asked me for my telephone number next to Kim's telephone number. She was a beautiful Irish lady in the softest of Irish accents. Uh, she looked back down at me and I smiled at her. Uh, she said, it's beautiful to see that smile, Raymond. She said, we're going to take you to the acute medical unit now. Uh, they mm-hmm. wheeled me in. They give me morphine. I woke up in the morning, like really confused, very, very confused. Mm-hmm. And the paramedic, Rebecca, she'd finished her shift. And she appeared at my bedside at eight o'clock in the morning, but she brought another co-worker with her. Mm-hmm. And as she walked towards my bed, I heard her say to a co-worker, here's the guy, here's the guy I'm telling you about. And she walked up to the side of my bed and she said, you don't know how lucky you are. We can't understand why you're still alive. She said, even right down to having the ambulance so close to your house. She said, it's, it's, it doesn't normally happen. Normally, we're coming to a dead body. Yeah. Right? So she, then she walked off. Wow. Now, in, in the research room, in the ER room, when I, when I kept going, I remember one of the moments is that when I came back, I sat on my forehead. And I could see that they'd cut my T-shirt off. And I was a bit upset about that. Hmm. Uh, it, was, it was one of my favorite T-shirts. And, uh, so there I am on my haunches. I could feel the clamminess and the coldness of my forehead underneath the, the pads of my feet. And as I've looked at everybody doing what they had to do, there was a guy to my left called Barry. He was from Wales. And he was, he was part of the crash team. And he turned around as he stood next to me. So I'm sitting on my forehead and I'm looking at him. And I heard him say to the rest of the crash team, if this doesn't bring him round, nothing will bring him round. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at him, Brian, and saying, he doesn't know that I'm going to feel this. Oh. And I looked down at my body and I remember saying to my body, you have been the most beautiful thing that I've ever been given. Um, and if I don't make this, I just want to say to you, thank you for all of the fun we've had and, and, and everything that, that, you know, that we've been through. Wow. Thank you. And then they just banged me again with the, uh, with the uh, defibrillator. Mm-hmm. I came round. I had two people on either leg. People were holding me down. And I remember as I became conscious, I know I dropped back a bit. I do apologize, but it's... No. it's it's a nice part of the story. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I became conscious of this voice saying, Raymond, Raymond, it's us. 
it's us, it's us. And I was fighting them. And I remember swearing at them again. I'd, I'd say, what do you think you're doing to me? What, what, what? And that was when it really kind of stopped. So fast forward to the next morning. Rebecca has come and gone. Mm-hmm. The next person to turn up is Barry, the one who said, this doesn't bring him around, nothing more. Yeah. He's come with the same story again. You are bizarre, he said. He mm-hmm. said, you are effing bizarre. And I was on morphine. You know, I, I could, it was on the drip. Mm-hmm. And I was just kept remembering, what's gone on? What, what on earth has gone on? So I said, yeah, okay, Barry, I am, I am the luckiest man alive. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased with that. Thank you. Yeah. And he left. But by then, the word had got around my local hospital that what, what had happened that, that night. One of the ladies who was running the crash team, she was, uh, her nickname was called Mel's Bell's Crash Team. Hmm. And she said to me, you were verging on the miraculous, darling. She said, we, we couldn't believe you know, how many times you were coming back. Uh, so she said, are you comfortable? I said, I'm fine. You know, so there I was. The consultant comes in to see me later on in the afternoon, tells me that well, they're going to do some surgery on my heart. And, uh, we'll, we'll do that tomorrow. Said, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I get wheeled into the ER room the next day, lying on the gurney. They've decided that they're going to put a stent in, into my heart. Okay. Uh, they're all pretty, still very puzzled. I have no real sort of brain trauma. I can still use all of my hands and my legs. And, you know? Yeah. So he said, we're going to leave the shocker machine between your legs, Raymond, because I'm afraid you've been really scaring my staff. Wow. Right, okay. He said, um, are you not puzzled how you survived? I went, yeah, uh, no, not, not, not really, Doc. I said, I've come from a family of seers. You know, you see all this on people. Mm-hmm. Now, he's all masked up, he's gowned up, he's put the angiogram in trimmy groin up into my heart, mm-hmm. and I'm watching myself, I'm watching it all on the television screen, and uh, he said, tell me more about your family. He said, do you see anything wrong with me? And I remember thinking, what, in the operating theatre? Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, can I touch you? Uh, he, he said, yeah, yeah. Uh, I said, do you know what's wrong with you? He went, yeah, yeah, I do. So I'd, I'd seen what was wrong with him, Brian, as clear as I'm looking at you now. Hmm. Five things wrong with him on his stomach. And I, I, so I touched him. I said, one, two, three, four, five. And then I, he, I said, come in a bit closer. He leant in a bit closer. I said, do you have trouble pooing, Doc? Mm-hmm. And he was, he was a half-caste guy. Mm-hmm. He blushed pink. He went, yeah, yeah, I do. He said, can you do anything for me? I went, yeah, yeah. So as soon as you're working on my heart, I said, that's a, that's a, that's a fair exchange. So don't have to do successful angiogram. He wheeled me out into the, into the recovery room. One of the nurses has come up to me and she said, can I be really unprofessional with you, Raymond? Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. She said, I couldn't help but overhear what you said to the consultant in there. Oh, okay. She said, do you see anything wrong with me? Again, same question, Brian. Do you know what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm testing out a new feature. I'd love to get your feedback on it. It's called Fan Mail, and you can send me a message right from the show notes of the podcast. So look for the link that says send me a text. You can ask a question for a future podcast. You can suggest a guest or just give me any feedback you want. Just remember, it is one way I can't text you back, and I will not have your name, your email address, or your phone number unless you include it in the message. Let me know what you think. She said, yeah. So I touched her, told her what was wrong with her. She said, yeah. But as she said that to me, a man was superimposed over her body. I said, your husband... Bear in mind, she's got no rings. I've never met her before. Mm-hmm. Your husband, has he got something wrong with his left knee? She, she was just, she looks at me so shocked. Mm-hmm. 
if your information, Raymond, because my husband's an athlete, he's coming into this hospital today to have an operation on his carpet on his left knee. Oh, wow. <laughs> do you often do this? I said, well, only when I'm allowed. Right. So they wheel me off into recovery. The fourth day, spat out of hospital, come home, didn't recognize the house, wandered around the house for maybe six or seven weeks, believing it, I was in someone else's house. Mm. Um, and one day there was a, a box with all of my photographs. I kept walking by. In my previous occupation was a heat and plumbing engineer. So I'd be allowed into somebody's house and that, that sense of trust I would, I would never betray. Because mm -hmm. I was thinking that I was in a job house, not my own home. Oh, wow. I wasn't touching anything apart from cooking. That just felt right to me and sleeping. Mm -hmm. But there was this box. And one day I, the, the voice said, you have to look in the box. So I sat down at the kitchen table, took the lid off, and there was all the photographs of, of, of my life. And I remember sitting there going through them and looking at them all and thinking, wow, this, this guy's really been around. He's traveled an awful lot. Wow. <laughs> so football back away, Brian decided uh, that, what's that motorcycle doing outside my house? I thought, I don't know whose it is, but I suspect it may belong to Raymond. But I've looked for the keys. And I decided that I was going to take the motorcycle out for a ride around town. Wow. Yeah. Um, seemed a good idea at the time. Um, I got to the top of my road, got out onto the main road, got up to a roundabout, couldn't figure out how to go around a roundabout, parked the motorcycle up, walked back home, friend drove the bike back to me. And that was really when I realized that there wasn't enough help yeah. Who yeah. was suffering like I was. So back to the doctor. Explained to him about the mental health issues that I was having. Who I didn't know who I was. Um, didn't know who my family were really. Uh, when my family turned up at the hospital the, the, the day after, the morning after, mm -hmm. and see me, uh, I didn't recognise any of them. Not a single one. Uh, and I lived a lie for probably three or four years uh, and uh, used to say yeah yeah I know, I know everyone here but I genuinely didn't wow Every, everything was severed Brian the whole the love connection it was just gone it was nothing and, uh, I couldn't bear to tell my family that I didn't recognize them because I, I I knew the impact that it would have so I've yeah. for years and years um, and then I started to see psychiatrists. Um, and then that's when I realized the transference of people's perceptions of death were coming out within the sessions. People were not so much interested in my mental health. They wanted to know what I'd seen, they wanted to know what the other side was like. Yeah. Um, quite a few would start crying in front of me, which I found a, a little bit disturbing mm -hmm. because obviously I was there to get help. Right, but, right. What was happening, Brian, is that it's becoming well reversed. Yeah. Um, because I was already a registered healer, I was kind of used to it. It was the, the norm for me to, to, if I see something wrong with you or if you ask me, I'll, I'll work on you. Right, right. Um, so it, it was the norm. But it was having a devastating impact upon me. And then a letter came through the letterbox. And it was from the Cardiac Rehab Center at the hospital that saved my life mm -hmm. and it went on for 10 days and about the fourth or fifth day one of the staff there said to me what are you going to do now you can't do your work anymore Raymond I remember thinking well she said has no one told you yet I went no she said your capacity at the moment to do work is is no, I hadn't seen it. No one was brave enough to pull me aside and go, listen up, Ray, <laughs> I'm afraid you're not going to work for a while. Yeah. So I panicked. I said, I'll, I'll hire a room here. I said, I come from a family of healers. I see illnesses on people. Uh, I went, so that's, if I'm allowed, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll just work on your staff here for nothing. I'll, I'll, it doesn't, if I can't work, well, I'll give something back. Hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, she questioned about my seeing ability. And she asked, what do I see? So, just casually explain, Brian, because this has been all my life, really, being a seer. Yeah. I saw you know, inflammation, cancers, and she stopped me right there. And she asked me straight out, she said, do I have cancer? I thought, whoa. Uh, so there's caveats. I don't just go, yes, you have. Yeah. I made sure that she wanted to know. And she mm. was really insistent. So I know when I start working, I go into the mildest of altered states. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember saying to her, turn around. She turned around, she's now got her back to me. And I watched this hand come up, this finger came up and it touched her just below her left shoulder blade. I said, you've got cancer, so it's just here. Hmm. It's a millimeter in size, but it's asleep. And I came out of the altered state, she turned around and she looked at me and she had this look of thunder on her face. Mm. And I thought, you're in trouble now, right? She said, for your information, Raymond, it's not a millimetre in size. It's 1.2 millimetres and it really matters. She said, where your finger was, was I had surgery, she said, about two or three months ago. She said, I've had my breast removed. And the surgeon told me I had a 70 mil in diameter tumor on the wall, on the back wall of a lung. Mm. He told me I couldn't get it all out. So we'll measure it and over time we'll keep uh, an MRI scan to see if it's gotten any bigger. Mm. So she said, you're correct. She said, do you still want to work here? I would, I would love to work here. Wow. Do you want to work on the chemo unit? Well, uh, yes, I do. Uh, I was spent a year and a half in the chemo unit and it was the most learned time that I've ever had. Really? I worked with people who didn't have long to live. I had an affinity with people because I'd been to where most of them were going to go. Mm. So they decided that they would allow me to work in the hospital under the auspices of being a registered healer. Here in the UK, if you become registered, um, but the Healing Trust is recognized by the National Health Service here. So really? we'll allow you to, to work in the hospital. Wow, that's different than it is here. That's great. It's massively different. It's, yeah. uh, and I, I was blown away to be honest with you, Brian. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. So I went for the interview. And uh, I'm sitting in the staff room. It's a very informal interview because obviously they'd heard about me. Uh, so there I am. And they said the interview will start shortly. And we're just waiting for somebody else to come back in. So there was probably four or five other nurses within this room. Mm -hmm. A lady came in, uh, another, another staff nurse. She stood at the other end of the room and she went, you're, you're the guy who everyone's talking about. Uh, yeah. She said, we're not going to allow you to work on anyone else. You're just going to work on us. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. She said, but I want to ask you a question. Yeah. She said, what's wrong with me? And I remember looking left to right. I went, what, here, in front of everyone? She went, yeah, these are all, these are all my friends. Went, okay. Uh, and I said, your, your left ovary, your left ovary is inflamed. Uh, the, the room went quiet again, and I thought, you've flown it. She said, I've just come from the Philip Farron Maternity Centre, she said, where they've just been looking at my ovaries. She said, just now, within the last half an hour, she said they told me that the left one is inflamed. Hmm. And she looked at me with a real sad eye. She said, well, I have a child. I went, yeah, you will. I said, you'll have a boy. And, uh, and then I start. I start on the therapy unit. Wow. Felt like a fish out of water for the first sort of three or four weeks. Couldn't really understand what I was supposed to be doing here. For the first three or four weeks, I was making tea, Brian, and just helping people with their chemo and running up to the pharmacist and you know, to get just, just being a general dog's body, really. Uh -huh. And then they said, we've got a little chapel here, right? Would you like to work out of the chapel? Right. Uh, I thought, oh, yeah, that'd be spectacular. So I'd met the, the vicar, the vicar of the hospital. Mm -hmm. He wasn't too sure. I could, I could tell by her body language that She'd heard that um, about me, but she was just curious of who is he. Mm -hmm. um, so 
at the hospital, we had a vast range of cultures, uh, vast range of cultures. And uh, some of the cultures who I was working with, the man wasn't allowed to touch a woman. Mm-hmm, right. You know, reading purpose on the arm or something like that. So I started to get a bit of a cue outside of my little chapel. And, um, which obviously started people, some of the consultants, the chemo consultants, wanted to know, who's he? Yeah. What's he doing here? And obviously they're hearing back, not from me, but they're hearing back from patients and staff who I'd worked with. So after about six or seven weeks, I'm sitting in the chemo room, sitting next to a a lady who's who's on a chemo, and a woman has appeared in in, in the doorway. she took a deep breath and she pointed a finger at me. She went, <gasps> she went are you Raymond O'Brien? Uh, yeah, I thought I'd done something wrong, Brian. I said, yeah. Yes, I am. She said, I've been trying to find you for, for ages. I said, can I have a word with you? Again, suffering from cancer itself. And, uh, so we went for coffee. She explained that she would see light coming off me and all of these sort of things, Brian. And then over a period of time, People were starting to say to me, when I sit next to you, pain, my pain stops. Hmm. And, uh, and which to me, I, that, that meant that it was worth me being here, worth me being on, on, on the chemo. Right, right. So one night, Brian, I'm, I'm at home. One of, one of my patients who would come to see me every, uh, twice a week, her soul appeared in the corner of my room. And... I identified her straight away. I knew the soul was lost. And I remember having a conversation with the, with the soul. I said, you're not supposed to be here. That's a word again. And the soul said, I'm lost. I said, you have to go back. Hmm. And I realized who this soul had come from. It came from a very, very, very sick lady who probably didn't have more than the six weeks to live at that time. Oh, wow. And, uh, so I came in the next day, and as it would happen, that was her day for, for chemo. So as she's on a chemo, I sat down beside her, and I went, are you okay? She went, why, why, why do you ask? I said, well, your soul came to see me last night. I know this sounds mad, <laughs> but your soul came to see me. I said, so it made me think you must have been really bad. She went, I was so bad last night, Raymond. She said, I could not take any more oromorph. She said, otherwise I would have overdosed. She said, I was in so much pain. I was crawling around on the floor on all fours, just mm. trying to, she said, she said it, was, it was unbelievable. So I said, well, look, you know, what I'd like to do, I'd, I'd like to, uh, to apply some sort of research to this. So the next time that you're in pain, can you write it down? And I'll write down and see if your soul comes to see me. And lo and behold, that's exactly what started to happen. Really? Wow. And it wasn't just her, you know, it was a few other souls. So this, this is why people are still, still alive. Their souls yes, are traveling yes, outside their yes. bodies and coming to see you. Yeah I, yeah, I kind of worked out that the only sort of constant thing that was coming up was the people that had taken as much morphine as they could. Mm. So I, I started to realize that it was the morphine that was setting the soul free. Interesting, okay. It was, it was off on a wander. So do you remember the lady who stood in the doorway and said, <gasps> yeah, well, she didn't have very long to live. Mm. No. And uh, she got taken to a hospice to have the last few of her days. And we were very good friends by then. Mm-hmm. And I'd had a phone call and they said that they've taken her to the hospice and she probably hasn't got more than three days to live, Raymond. So if you want to go and see her, go and see her. Mm-hmm. So I jumped on my bike, went to the hospice, as I'm in the car park, I've noticed the most beautiful lady walking towards me. And as, as, oh, she's nice. she walks right into the hospice. So I didn't think nothing else of it. Got into the hospice, went up to the reception desk, said to them who I'd come to see, who I was. And they said, we'll, we'll lead you through to her. I went, okay. So as I'm going deeper into the corridors, into the hospice, the light has changed to a sepia brown color. And I'm walking past little sort of four bed dormitories with patients who are curled up in the fetal position and clearly haven't got long to live. And 
I'd noticed that coming out of the walls and bouncing off the walls were the souls. Mm -hmm. um, bef before I could be shocked by what I'd seen, the lady who was leading me through the hospice, and we stood at another four bedded unit and she said, the lady you want to see is right in the corner. And the curtains were drawn around the bed. Mm -hmm. and all I could see was a pair of feet at the, at the end of the bed, a pair of shoes on somebody who was obviously in there. So I, I said, excuse me, excuse me, my name's Raymond, I've come to see this, this lady. And the lady who was standing at the bottom of the bed was the very attractive lady who walked in. Mm -hmm. So that was the first connection. It was her daughter. Oh, okay. Uh, so she'd heard about me from her mother. Uh, and she said, thanks for coming, Raymond. Uh, obviously, my mother's not long to live. So I sat on the bed with her. By now, she, all her hair was gone. She was on, on oxygen. She, she looked like a, a walking, talking skeleton, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I sat next to her, and I could hardly hear her talk. And I'd said to her daughter before I'd actually really got into conversation with her mother, I said, your mum came to see me last night. That's why I knew she was really bad. Um, the daughter kind of didn't really believe what I had to say. Right. And uh, so I'm now sitting next to her mother, and her mother's trying to say something to her daughter, but with the oxygen mask on, it's just really mumbling. But mm -hmm. she, she heard her mother say, Raymond came to see me last night. Mm. And it was, it, it made me feel so alive because her mother had said, she, her mother had backed up what I had said. Yeah, yeah. So her mother died probably about 24 hours after that. But I was asked specifically by, by the daughter, can you keep mum alive until so-and-so can come and see her? So well, I can only do my best. Right. And thankfully, that's exactly what happened. Wow. Um, so kept, kept on at the chemo unit, Brian. Um, and then one day my mother said to me, it's time for you to leave chemo unit. And, and I, I kind of felt that, but I wasn't too sure. Right. So I thought, well, I'll turn over every stone before I leave, just to make sure that, you know, I can't believe I actually doubted my mother. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know. Um, but she was correct. Anyway, I left. Mm -hmm. Came back home, still seeing psychiatrists, just really being made worse to be honest with you. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi there, I'm really excited to tell you about my latest ebook. It's four lessons that you can learn from the near-death experience without going through all the trouble of dying to learn them. I've been studying NDEs for several years now. I am completely convinced that not only are they 100% real, but that there's some very universal wisdom that we can get from the near-death experience. And I've distilled that down in this book into four short lessons. And I've also given you all the reasons why I believe that NDEs are absolutely real. So go to www.grieftogrowth.com slash NDE lessons to pick it up for free www.grief2growth.com slash NDE lessons. I hope you enjoy it. So with all this healing, all this great work you're doing, you're still struggling with your own integration. Massively, yeah. Brian, massively. Okay. I, to be honest with you, Brian, I didn't even know who Raymond O'Brien was anymore. Um, you know, right, right from... Uh, you know, I play guitar. Mm -hmm. um, that was a good barometer of how the brain was. When I couldn't do chords uh, or finger patterns, I, I knew something wasn't right. I knew there was because of the oxygen starvation. So there was something off with your physical brain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, just, yeah. It, just, it just wasn't that. You know, the, the, I think the brain was still jelly. I think mm -hmm. the general consensus from the heart consultants that it, it takes roughly about four years to recover from a stroke, let alone a cardiac arrest. Mm. The brain kind of settles down. And um, so I, I was on my own. I became isolated by then. I didn't speak to my family. Just really cut myself off. I couldn't mm -hmm. cope. Could, could not cope. Um, ideations of suicide. Um, well, you know, Raymond, this brings up a really interesting point because, yes. uh, and I never thought of this before, but people that come back from NDEs, I, I just I interviewed PMH Atwater not too long ago, and oh. she was saying that the average adult takes seven to 14 years to integrate the experience. And I always thought it was psychological issues from being on the other side and trying to come back here. But maybe there's some physical aspect to it too. Do you think there might be? 
Yeah, yes, for sure. Okay. It's the it's the incredulity of it all, Brian. It's the you know people people think trauma only comes from bad events, mm-hmm. but trauma can also come from from wonderment. Mm-hmm. And you know, for, for myself to have people come up to me and go, oh, you know, you're this and oh, you're that, and you know, when I sit next to you, the pain stops. I I had who who could I speak to? Who, who could I go and see? Yeah. You know, there was. I was always unique within the UK. There was no one who I could go to. So I just had to put that into Pandora's box and shut it quickly. Yeah. Um, it was the only way that I could survive. Um, but then I had an email. email. An email came from the cardiac unit. And, uh, they asked, would I be prepared to come back to the hospital that saved my life to give a talk on how the medical profession can help us NDE survivors mm-hmm. uh, because many of us are surviving, but many of us are coming back with psychological problems. Yeah. This is what they can't handle. So thankfully the NHS here are aware of this now and they're doing their very best to try to look into the psychological effects, but they're coming from the wrong viewpoint. They're coming from the wrong validated working psychiatric working model it doesn't fit mm. um, and we know it doesn't fit because many NDEs are topping themselves you know they, they, they can't take what's going on so they'll, they'll commit suicide it's, right. it's 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 a way for them to go i can't do this anymore so clearly to me it had had identified a problem within the mental health regime of how they are treating us yeah uh, so that, that was the first id so there i was in front of, it was a full house at the conference center at the hospital that saved my life. Uh, I was interviewed by a guy whose specialist field was dealing with NDE trauma patients. Mm. Um, Ken Spearpoint, he asked me lots of questions, um, but even just by his questions, I, I'd already knew that he hasn't really got a handle on what's happening here. So right at the end, one of the, one of the big bosses of the NHS said, Raymond, thank you for coming. If you could, how would you help others here in the same situation? I said, you need a Raymond in every single one of your cardiac rehab units. Uh, uh, and I said, I'll do it. I'll travel the UK and I'll, I'll speak to your staff just, mm. just to mm-hmm. give you an idea of how we are suffering here, how... You've not got a handle on this with, you know, with the greatest respect, you haven't got a handle on this. And uh, so, great talk, absolutely fabulous. Right at the end of the talk, a big tall guy comes to see me, fascinated by your talk, Raymond. He said, uh, just absolutely fascinated, his name is Gina. He said, I was thinking about what you said. He said, and I've got the local newspaper here. And there's, there's uh, a, uh, a college here that is running a course if you wanted to study to, to, uh, to actually practice, you know, to be a therapist within this work. So it's mm-hmm. a four-year course. He said, well, you know, here it is. He actually tore out the little box and he gave me, gave me, gave me the info. Wow. And, uh, I said, thanks, thanks, Gina. He was a paramedic at the, at the time. Mm-hmm. So I started the course, started to realise... I'm now finding out about Freud, Maslow, all of the psychiatrists, how they, you know, um, yeah. Carl Rogers, he had his own near-death experience. And, uh, da, 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 da. But I'd realized that many of them who were well-known hadn't actually had the full nine yards of the experience. And I had identified where their knowledge had stopped. Hmm. So then I knew I was onto something really unique here. Mm-hmm. Um, was training up. Still seeing psychiatrists, still having psychiatrists and therapists cry in front of me. Yeah. Some were saying, I don't know what to say to you, Raymond. I just, I just don't know. Others, as I mentioned earlier, wanted to know what it was like on the other side. They just kind yeah. of forgot about why I was there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they needed to fill their boots. Um, but I'm still seeing things. I'm still helping others. And I'm now back. At my, at my mother's, uh, mum had become ill. She had frontal lobe, frontal lobe dementia. Mm. And, um, every time I'd come and see her, Brian, 
is to tap her on the forehead. So what's this, baby? What's she said? What have, what, what have you seen? I said, I, I, I don't know, but every time I come and see you, whatever it is changes color. So I, I did a drawing for her, right now. and um, then she was diagnosed with frontal lobe. Mm. My sister and my mother, we went up to see the consultant. And the three of us are sitting there, and the consultant to give us the bad news. She's probably got about 18 months to live. Uh, they've done an MRI scan. The consultant brought up the MRI scan onto the screen, and, and I didn't even look, Brian. I thought, I, I know what's going to happen. Uh, I heard my sister gasp, and I looked at her, and she looked back at me, and she said, that's exactly what your drawing is. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I kind of knew. Yeah. Um, so I then was asked to come back to the Royal St. Bart's Hospital. It's a very old hospital. It's been around since the 17th century. It's a teaching hospital, the Royal wow. Royal to come back for the same thing can you speak to the staff and, mm-hmm. you know. so given the talk right at the end of the talk Brian big tall guy walks up to me and says to me Raymond I remember looking up at him and thinking I don't recognise you he said it's me Gino Gino he said it's good to hear that how, how, how you've got on with the course you went fantastic that you know mm-hmm. I said what, what brings you here he said, I had my own cardiac arrest. He said, when I heard that he was giving a talk here, he said, I just had to come and listen to what you had to say. Wow. So he moved on from a paramedic, and he was now actually head of a, a resource department just outside of London here. Wow. So we're back in, in, in touch again. Uh, he now teaches staff. Uh, he's, he's been asking me, can you, can you take some time out and come and sit with some of the students here just so they have an understanding of, of what's going on? So that was that was kind of where we where where we sort of are. So yeah, that is just absolutely fascinating. <laughs> you have, I mean, the whole story. I've lost you on volume there. Yeah, that was my alarm going off. Sorry oh. about that. Um, yeah, that's just so you know fascinating. I don't even know where to start to ask you some questions. Uh, and I know everybody asks you about your NDE, but I do have to ask you about the gray because I, I hadn't heard that before. So, what do you think that is, and what's what's the purpose of that? That's a great question. I'll tell you what it reminded me of. You know the old Charles Dickens A Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where he gets taken around and he's shown all different sorts of scenes. Yeah, uh, that was the only thing. To use it as a metaphor, that's the only thing that I could equate that to. Okay. Um, I knew, Brian, I knew when I started drinking. I think it's important to bring in, I had an uncle, Uncle Dieter. Mm-hmm. My mother was German. And uh, my Uncle Dieter had the same skills. Um, and it, it drove him virtually mad. He ended mm-hmm. up being a full-on alcoholic, spent a lot of time in prison. It was mm-hmm. the safest place for him. He mm-hmm. was no good outside. Uh, and, uh, so I was already aware of the impact of being a seer, of, of having this skill, should, should we say. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a skill we all have. It's just whether or not we have the time to, to practice it. Again, just like the guitar, if we don't practice, we're not going to get better. Okay. Uh, that's the sort of how I applied the science to it. Okay. So there I was on the other side, uh, the lasting impact of being in the gray was almost like the Charles Dickens scenario. It was, you've got, you've got a choice here, Raymond. Hmm. You can either continue down the road you're on or you, you can make a change. Yeah. I chose not to make a change. I chose to continue, um, being the drinker, I knew what had happened to me. My mother passed three years ago, um, almost to the day, and the grey reminded me that I needed to pay attention to her death experience mm-hmm. and, and to learn from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got to such a degree that I remember sitting with her and she asked me almost the same question that you had asked me. What do you think you had learned from the grey and why do you think you're back here? Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, I said, well, the grey frightened me, Mum. Frightened me an awful lot. She said, not enough for you to change enough, though, has he? And, uh, mm -hmm. I went, no. And, uh, she said, you need to change. She said, your thoughts are not your own. Mm -hmm. you, must, you must change. And, and we, we, we kind of left it at that. Um, <clears throat> so it terrified me. It absolutely it was. It was a, a very fast flick flack from being in the most beautiful place to being in the ER room to meeting California Dave, and that was when I'd realised you you have a a, a a real choice. But I was still frightened, Brian. But I knew something else was going to happen. I knew my lessons weren't over. I watched the interview that you did with. Reverend Peter Panagor, and oh, I've got to meet him. Oh yeah, yeah, Peter's it's great. Yeah, Peter. Just Peter's incredible. Great. Some of the things he was saying just resonated within me like a bell. To be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and up and even up until probably a year and a half ago, I had changed. I had changed, but I hadn't changed enough. Mm. Uh, and I, I did a, I did an interview. The guy called Amit Kane, mm -hmm. and I remember confessing. That's the only way that I could say it. I just kind of blurted it out. So I have to tell you, Amit, um, I believe in God. <laughs> um, um, he was like, well, well, so do I, really. But this was the first time I'd ever gone. I have to say, it. I don't know why, Brian. I just had to say it. Yeah. And it was from that moment on. I'm not a religious person, but again, to quote. Mr. Panagor, I'm not a religious man, but I believe God is my boss. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, again, that really resonated with me, what, what he had said. And, um, so I knew something was coming at me, knew it. Even though my mum had gone, I just knew something else was, was, was going to happen because I wasn't following the route that I was told. Yeah. Um, and then I think it was early 2019, started to get very bad chest pains again. I knew what was going on. Was mm. But this time I decided to wait for my soul to say what I'm going to do. So I waited, massive chest pains throughout the, throughout the year. On the run up to Christmas, probably about two weeks before Christmas, dreadful chest pains, absolutely dreadful chest pains. Mm -hmm. Christmas Day came and knew I'd had a heart attack. You, you just know there's no other. I don't know if you've had one, Brian, but it's, it's like a red hot poker being driven into your chest. Mm. Um, and that was what had happened. Um, so I fought it off, shrugged it off. And uh, March, March came of last year. Mm -hmm. um, couldn't take the pain anymore. The soul said, You have to go to hospital. So. Jumped on the motorcycle, drove myself to the hospital, oh, walked wow. into A&E, <laughs> <laughs> &E, went to the reception, told her, I've got strong cardiac history, got really bad chest pains. She went, take a seat, took a seat, see me within 10 minutes, sat in there, took some blood off of me, came back to see me and said, yeah, you, you, you've had a heart attack. You've, you've had a big heart attack. Mm. that we can see. And I, but I could see them looking at me, Brian, going, he's walked in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's got a massive heart attack. <laughs> he's laughing and joking with everyone. And I found this quite traumatic. And, you know, it's, it's something, again, which I, I find incredulous. I, I haven't come to terms with it. Mm -hmm. uh, other than God will do with you whatever he wants to do with you. And all you've got to do is go, I'm with you, man. I'm, I'm with you on this one. Yeah. Yeah. So, or, I, I, I could talk to you all day, I, but I, I've got to um, wrap up in a few minutes here. But okay. I, I do want to ask you about the work that you're doing now. I think it's amazing that, you're, that you've gotten the NHS to recognize that NDE people have unique you know, uh, requirements. And I want to point out to our audience that NDEs are not as unique as you might think they are. I mean, there's been estimated that five to 10% of the population has had NDEs. And I just did a real quick calculation this morning. That could be as many as 300 million people in the it's world. Million. 
Yes. Yeah, it's millions of people that are going through this. Yeah. So tell me about the work that you're doing now. The work that I'm doing now, um, <clears throat> I there's a huge charity here in the UK called Mind, and uh, they're affiliated to the NHS. Um, I do voluntary work for them, mm -hmm. uh, only one day a week, uh, because I still have very level black days, like mm. massive. So sometimes the heart won't work. Um, so mind is spectacular. Um, mind have tailored my clients to my own specialist field. So, mm -hmm. so the clients that I see at the moment uh, are all trauma-based clients. And the affinity, Brian, between those who come in, it's, it's, it's night and day to my own experience. And, and this is how some who come and see me, I can literally see on their faces when, when, I, when they understand that, I know what they're talking about. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, uh, it just takes away a whole load of nonsense and it brings us right into a framework of, of what is troubling them. Many don't talk about the effect it has on the families. You know, many NDEers are full of wonderment with it. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, many NDEers, when we do these interviews, don't realize the impact that it has upon us. Yeah. It took me a long time to, to get the skills together right. to, be able to, to give these interviews. Well, um, people don't realize that like NDEers experience a higher rate of divorce, you know, a yes. higher rate of suicide, you know, alcoholism, all these yes. things also can be part of the after effects of an NDE if people aren't getting the proper help. Yes, this is the, the biggest problem. I think what's, what's, what's happening to me, um, I had spoken to one of the directors of mine um, I was at a, a course probably about four or five weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm very interested in, in what you've got to say. He said, because there isn't anything like this here. Mm -hmm. uh, have you thought about, you know, going further on it? Have you thought about lottery funding? Um, because my poor old brain is, is not what it used to be. I'm like, <gasps> um, so yeah. I've, I've gone, I run with my sister. My sister deals with all of the admin side. My sister deals with emails. Because I, I genuinely can't do it right. Yeah, um, well, I know you're you're doing some work with Ians and Reverend Bill McDonald and, and yes. Lilia, and these are people that people my listeners may or not know their names. But I appreciate you getting your your knowledge out to people to help Thank people you. that are going through this. I think it's fantastic what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's beautiful of what you are doing, particularly because I know your story. You know, so it's it, it can't be easy for you either. Um, well, you know, I, I, I'm not at the level of you or Peter, but, you know, I feel like I'm on a mission from God too, right? This is, this is yeah. the mission that I've been given, so this is what I do. Wonderful. I can't thank you enough, Brian. You know, it, it, it's a gamble. It's a gamble for you to, to have me on your show, and I appreciate that from, from the bottom of my heart. So, you know, for anyone who's promoting this, because, you know, as, as we know, it's happened. you've had a loss. Many of us have losses. Yeah, um, and it's getting the right help. Um, hopefully, to help others with the help of mind. Uh, I know we're running out of time now, but with the help of mind, the mission statement of this is to start to work on a new psychoanalytical working model, yeah. specifically tied into the NDE survivors. Because it's not there. So, how can people in the UK? This is UK only. I'm assuming right now. But how can people in the UK get in touch with Mind or with you? Mind. It would probably best to come to me rather than go to Mind at the moment. Mind okay. have given me the option. Uh, I, I have my quota of clients. Okay. It cool. My frame of mind at this present time. Mm -hmm. uh, but to get in contact with me is rayob1 at live.co. UK. Okay. And okay. I also have a Facebook page which my sister has set up. It's Raymond O'Brien VNDE UK. So you can message us there and, uh, and we'll, we'll get back to you as, as fast as we possibly can. Uh, that sounds great. That sounds great. Right. I, I, I knew this was going to be a fascinating interview and I'm really glad to have met you and, and heard your story and what you're doing now. And I want to give you encouragement to keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. I want to give you encouragement as well because you are spreading the word, sir. And, 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 and I'm 
Bless you for that. Well, thank you. I hate to, I hate to rush you out, but I actually have another interview coming up like right now. So it was great meeting you. And you, Brian. God All bless right. you, sir. Hopefully I'll talk to you later. I'd love that. Thank Bye. you. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I want to make it really easy for you to reach me. So just send me a text to 31996 and simply text the word growth, G-R-O-W-T-H. In fact, you can right now just say, hey, Siri, send a message to 31996. And when Siri asks you what you want to send, just say growth. You can do the same thing with OK Google. Thanks a lot. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to Grief to Growth. Brian hopes that you find this episode helpful and will come back for future episodes. Brian's best-selling book, Grief to Growth, Planted Not Buried, is a great resource for anyone who is coping with grief or knows someone who is. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support it, there are three things you can do to help. The first is to share the podcast with someone that you think it will help. The second is to go to iTunes, rate, and review the episode. The third way you can support the podcast is by becoming a patron. Head over to www.patreon.com slash grief to growth. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash grief, the number two, growth, and sign up to make a small monthly donation. Patrons get access to exclusive bonus content and knowledge that you are helping to spread the message of grief to growth. For more about Brian and grief to growth, visit www.grief2growth.com. Hey there, if you like this episode, come on over and talk about it. Let me know what you liked. If you didn't like this episode, come on over and talk about it. Let me know what you didn't like. Go to grieftogrowth.com slash community and look for talk about the podcast. I'll see you there.